Let's uh, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word. We thank you that uh, you promised to uh, send your word out and that it will not return void. Uh, We pray that your spirit would work in us tonight and that would indeed be the case, uh, that your word would have its intended effect in our lives. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our son Jack is seven months old now, and uh, we still get these two same questions uh, pretty well, it's pretty consistent, actually. The first is, how is it being parents? Standard question. The second is, are you getting any sleep? And of course, by this point, thankfully, we are getting sleep. Uh, and the other question, yeah, we love being parents. It's been incredible, so much more than we could have expected. He's easily one of the greatest blessings that we've ever known, without a doubt, hands down. But there's one other blessing, though, that has come along here since Jack has been born. I don't usually answer this way when this question is asked, because this blessing isn't as significant, but it's a blessing nonetheless. The blessing is that we eat really well now at our house. We have really good meals these days, and that's really happened since Jack was born. Here's the reason. Jeanette stays home with Jack. And most of, the, most of the time during the day, she actually has the food network on in the background. And sometimes she'll actually sit down and watch a show. She has a, a few favorite shows that she watches regularly. And then she'll actually try the recipe from that day. And that's what we have for dinner. And this is where the eating gets really good at our house. One of her favorite shows is one. Uh, it's Rachel Ray's show. It's called 30 Minute Meals. You may have heard of that. It's really popular now. And the whole idea of the show is that she'll she'll prepare a meal from start to finish in the time that the show is on the air in 30 minutes. Now, the premise behind this show is simple, but it, it's interesting when you think about it, though. The idea is that families need to sit down and enjoy a meal together. And we see this, too, when people lament over the effects of our fast paced society. One of the things that people inevitably point to is that the family is breaking down. The family structure isn't what it used to be. What's even more interesting, though, is what they suggest as the solution. And usually, it's that people need to sit down and have a meal together. People are too busy. Everybody has so much going on every evening that we never sit down at the dinner table and share a meal. So even our society sees that there's something significant and even intimate and definitely important about sitting down and enjoying a meal together. Well, something similar can be said about our meal as the family of God. You may have noticed that some of those questions from the Heidelberg were new. You may not have heard those before, and that was a new hymn for us. What I want to look at tonight is the Lord's Supper, this meal that we have as a family of God. The Lord's Supper, though we don't talk about it a whole lot, is absolutely crucial to the life of the church. This is the unique meal of the family of God that we absolutely need. And when Jesus instituted this meal, the Lord's Supper, on the night before his crucifixion, he also gave us that new commandment that Darwin mentioned earlier. The the new commandment, uh, which is that abbreviated term for the Latin phrase, mandi. And this is this new commandment is found in John 13. I just want to read it quickly to you here. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus calls us here in a very specific way to love one another. And that what's going to result from this is a genuine community of people. But what I want to think about here, though, is this close tie between the Lord's Supper and this new commandment. It was in the midst of this meal that he gave this commandment. So how does what we do at this table, what we're going to do tonight, how does that relate to us and affect us as a community? That's what I want to think about. One of the core benefits of the Lord's Supper is the way that it forces us to recognize and even celebrate the community of which we're a part. And not only that, and I don't think this is saying it too strongly, but the Lord's Supper actually helps create community. It helps create community. So in the Lord's Supper, we celebrate community. Secondly, the Lord's Supper creates community and forms us into community. Well, that issue between community and the Lord's Supper is actually one of Paul's issues that he's dealing with in 1 Corinthians. This church that Paul's addressing in in 1 Corinthians has all kinds of problems, as you may know. This is one of those books where people lament over how bad the church is today. Our culture is worse than it's ever been. All it takes is one read of the book of 1 Corinthians and you go, okay, he was dealing with a lot of stuff too at that time. There was sexual immorality. There was lawsuits among believers within the church. They were despising the poor. They were hating the weak. And the list just goes on and on. But what I want us to see, though, is that this common theme that was running throughout all these problems when you get down to it was a fundamental disunity. What was going on is that there was a division in the church and all these things that ultimately could be boiled down to a lack of love for one another. So that was the core problem here. The specific issue he's dealing with in the passage that we're looking at tonight was idolatry. Okay, Paul's point isn't here to set forth this full-blown doctrine of the Lord's Supper, so we don't have a whole lot in this passage. But what he is doing, though, is showing that because this meal is so significant that we partake of here as a family, because that meal is so significant and due to the nature of it, these Corinthians can no longer be going to these pagan sacrificial meals. So something so significant is happening here that it's incompatible for them to continue going to these other meals. First here, I want to skip directly to, uh, to verse 17 if you look back there in your Bible. Paul makes this incredible statement here about the unity and solidarity of the body of Christ. He says this, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So we have this one loaf here sitting before us tonight that's representative and symbolic of the one community that we are as believers. So we have this one loaf because we are one community. We are one church. And really, I think it's odd language when you think about it. First of all, to compare us to a loaf of bread, but also when we just we use this language of body all the time. It's a bit odd when you think about it. Why use that kind of language? Is there is there anything different from what we have here than the Rotary Club or any other sort of organization that people are a part of? If we're just an organization, why use this sort of terminology? What's he talking about here? Well he's going to go on to explain this this metaphor of body in chapter twelve in much greater detail. But I think we can answer this even a little more simply than that. 
It really comes down to a basic understanding of what our salvation is. The simplest way that Paul defines our salvation is our being united to Christ. Our being united to Christ is our salvation. Now, he's constantly using these phrases. He doesn't use united to Christ as often, but you'll see in Christ, in him, through Christ. That's actually our son right there that's crying. Uh, he He uses those phrases constantly in him, in Christ, through him, through Christ. And it's in that intimate relationship that we have with Jesus, this true and vital union, that all the benefits of his life and his death and his resurrection come to us. They become ours in this relationship with Jesus. So when we believe the gospel, we're united to Christ and we experience all those glorious benefits of our salvation within the context of that relationship. But here's the point, though. The second significant union takes place here also. We're engrafted into Christ as individuals. But as we are engrafted into Christ, we become one body, though. Our relationships with one another then change as we are engrafted into Christ. We're united to one another in one body. Listen to what he says in uh, in chapter 12. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And he says later, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So we as members of the church aren't a part just of some old organization. There's something very significant here that we're made part of the one body of Christ and are thereby united to one another in this body. So Christ is not redeeming a bunch of individuals that then remain individuals. Now, of course, we're each responsible to believe the gospel individually and we are saved as individuals. But immediately, though, when we believe the gospel, we're united to one another. So immediately our relationships to one another change. We're made a part of the one body of Christ. You'd say this is the corporate dimension of the gospel. Christ is redeeming a people. So our relationships then obviously change. Something significantly different. We're committed to one another in such a way now that what happens to you now has a bearing on my life in a very real way. When you mourn, I mourn. When you rejoice, I rejoice. And to say this even a little more strongly is that we're actually obligated to love one another. We're in reality one body and we're called to show forth that unity in the way that we love one another. That's what Jesus is calling us to in John 13. And Paul In verse 17 here of the passage we're looking at tonight says that in the supper, we use one loaf to represent the fact that we are one people. The Lord's Supper forces us to recognize that and even celebrate that fact. Now, in the way we practice it, this even shows forth. We have elders that that will give you the promises of God as they hand you the elements. They'll speak those promises to you and notice that we don't come as individuals. We have whole groups that stand up here and ultimately we're coming as one body down front.
This is a community meal that we celebrate together. And it's completely appropriate and right. And we should do this. We should look around and recognize that we're a part of this one body and that we're obligated to one another. We're connected to one another in a very intimate relationship. We're called to genuinely love and serve one another in this body. You've probably heard uh, that we're called to love one another before. (laughs) That's not something new. Um, It's probably at this point where you go, that's exactly what I need. Another sermon telling me that I need to love people when in fact I really don't love people at all. And I've thought a lot about that this week as I uh, as I prepared this. When I'm honest with myself, you may be able to say the same. I don't come close to loving you all the way that I should. When I'm honest with myself, I'm much more interested in loving me than I am in loving any of you. Uh, We were talking this morning at prayer and uh, John had said, I don't have the capacity to love people the way Jesus calls us to love people. And I think that's that's exactly right. What's significant, though, about this meal is that one of the ways in which Jesus actually nourishes us and enables us to love one another is in this very same meal. So what we're doing tonight in celebrating the Lord's Supper is actually creating community. Okay, we're actually being formed into community as we come to the table tonight by partaking of this supper. We are actually communing with the risen and ascended Lord Jesus. By his Holy Spirit, Jesus is really personally present in the sacrament. Now, this isn't just any meal we're sharing together then, obviously. In a very real way, we meet with Jesus at this table by faith. And let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying Jesus is physically present in this in the sacrament. He doesn't literally show up in this way, obviously. Nor is there anything magic that's happening here. There's nothing superstitious that's going on. But this is what the Heidelberg Catechism was getting at there in question 77. We read that responsively. If you want to pick that back up, you can. In 77, the question is, where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat this broken bread And drink this cup. And the answer that he gives there are the words of Jesus' institution, the same night that he gave the commandment. And then he gives Paul's words from this passage that we're looking at tonight. Look at verse 16 again. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That's a really strong statement that Paul is making right there. The word for participation there is very significant. Paul's saying that by drinking of the cup and eating of the bread, that we, by faith, actually share in the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. Which is just to say that we actually share in Christ. So there's this absolutely crucial vertical element that we then experience, that we have fellowship with the risen Christ by the Spirit in the Supper. And it's that vertical element that actually establishes and is the foundation for the horizontal element, the way in which we would love one another. In other words, because Christ is really personally present to us in the Supper by faith, 
then the fact that this is a community meal that we participate in together takes on even more significance. We come to this table and are fed by the one who gives us grace to love one another. Jesus is the one who gives us strength to love. He is the only one. As we just said, we don't have the capacity to love as we should. Jesus is the only one that can provide that for us. He's the source of that strength. We need Him just as much in our growth as Christians as we did to make us right with God initially. There's never a time where Jesus isn't absolutely central and absolutely crucial to our lives. He is our resource. He's the center of all life. And He's the source of all of our life. Listen to this quote here from Keith Matheson. He describes it this way. If believers are united to Christ and are the body of Christ, and if the Lord's Supper is the sacrament in which our union with Christ is strengthened and nourished, then it should be a time in which our communion with the other members of the body of Christ is also strengthened. The Lord's Supper is not merely a subjective and individualistic time of private meditation on what Christ has done for me. It is a communal meal for the covenant family of God. On the night before His crucifixion, Jesus instituted this supper. And in the midst of that meal, He called us to love one another. We can see here, these two go hand in hand. It's not by accident that Jesus did things the way He did. At this table, we celebrate the reality that we are part of that one body. And we are strengthened to even live out that reality. This meal is not a somber time where we're to mull over and introspect on our sins. This time, this meal is a celebration of the salvation that is ours in Christ. Brothers and sisters, and I use that address on purpose, brothers and sisters come to this meal as a family. We say that rightly. We call each other brother and sister rightly. This is our meal as a family. Come to this table to be nourished by the Savior. Come to this table to have your faith strengthened. Come to this table to have Jesus enable you to love one another as He has called us to. Come receive the life of that One. Come, take, eat, and drink. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You do promise to to meet with us in a special and a unique way at the table. We thank You, Lord, that You do nourish us here. We thank You that we can confess honestly to You that we don't have it in us to love each other the way that You call us to. We love ourselves much more than we love one another. We love ourselves much more than we love You. We thank You, though, that we can bring our weak faith to this table and that we'll be nourished, we'll be strengthened, we'll be assured of the salvation that is ours in Christ. Lord, we are needy. We must be nourished here for us to to live the life You call us to. We pray by Your grace that You would do that in us now, that You would unite us to one another all the more, that You would enable us to love each other as You call us to. To your glory, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.